0: Welcome to Stories of Iceland. I have spent the month of July trying to set up a company for my podcast studio. I finally gave up on the accounting firm which was supposed to help us and filed the papers myself. That seems to be much quicker. But I still need to file a few more papers before the company can start spending and making money. If you want to help me focus more of my energy towards this podcast, please support me on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash stories of Iceland. I'd like to thank all of my patron supporters, especially Troy Williams, a friend of the podcast, who actually visited my studio this month for a nice chat Join him at patreon.com/stories of Iceland. There is extra material there, especially related to this episode. But this is Stories of Iceland, and this is episode 22 Sledgehammer Judgments from an English poet. Iceland is in the North Atlantic. Its capital city is Reykjavík. In Icelandic we have the word Sleggjudómr. It is a good word. It is, as so many and likely most Icelandic words, conjoined. It is formed by merging the word Sleggja, which means sledgehammer, and the word Dómur, which means judgment. I want you to imagine what the word means. I hope you get it. It can mean something like prejudiced, but it is often used when people are knowingly making snap judgments and assumptions about something. Take this passage, for instance. Reykjavík is the worst possible sort of provincial town as far as amusing oneself is concerned, and there is nothing to do but soak in the only hotel with a license, at a ruinous expense. Iceland wasn't always a hub of tourism, but there were still many visitors through the years. Some of them were young members of the upper classes, partaking in the European tradition of a grand tour – with a rather untraditional destination. Others were scholars who focused their attention on nature. Every so often these visitors would publish a travel book about Iceland. These books are sometimes a great source of information about Icelandic society and nature, but other times they are sensationalist nonsense which made Icelanders very angry indeed. By writing about Iceland, you could either become a friend of Iceland or an enemy, remembered through the centuries for slandering the country. Letters from Iceland is a travel book written by the British poets W. H. Auden and Louis MacNeice, who travelled the country in the summer of 1936. Louis MacNeice is not a household name, but W. H. Auden, who wrote most of the book, is still quite well-known. I first learned of the book while watching the critically acclaimed movie Away From Her. My first introduction to Auden had also been, as with many of my generation, not from reading his poems in school, but from another movie.
1: Stop all the clocks. Cut off the telephone. Prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone silence the pianos and with muffled drum bring out the coffin let the mourners come let the aeroplanes circle moaning overhead scribbling on the sky the message he is dead put crepe bows round the white necks of the public doves let traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves he was my north my south, my east and west my working week and my Sunday rest my noon my midnight, my talk, my song I thought that love would last forever I was wrong the stars are not wanted now put out every one Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood. For nothing now can ever come to any good.
0: That poem is, usually, called Funeral Blues. It is from a scene in the Hugh Grant's Andy McDowell film Four Weddings and a Funeral. Heart-wrenching poem from a heart-wrenching scene, the funeral scene, if you hadn't guessed, but for other generation, Auden is likely more known for his poem, September first nineteen thirty nine which was a reaction to the outbreak of the Second World War. I don't know what Auden and McNeese wanted to do when they wrote letters from Iceland. It is a travel book. And they were not the first British gentlemen who had written such a book, after visiting sitting Iceland. The book includes a five-part poem in which Auden addresses his fellow poet and countryman, Lord Byron. This letter, as it is called, does mention Iceland quite a few times, but it wanders off in all directions. Just read Don Juan and found it fine. I read it on the boat to Reykjavik, except when eating or asleep or sick. The fact is, I'm in Iceland all alone. The weirdest part of the book might be the chapter Hattie to Nancy, which is in the form of a letter from a woman travelling around Iceland with her lady friend and a group of schoolgirls. It confused me quite a bit, but it seems simply to reimagine an excursion by Auden and MacNeice as if they were of the opposite sex. I must stress that this is never discussed or explained. Other parts of the book are more akin to a regular travel book, sometimes in prose and sometimes in verse. Often the chapters are framed as letters to friends at home.
2: This poem is called A Journey to Iceland, which is connected with a journey I actually made to Iceland, but I suppose the theme really is the problem of islands in general and uh, who are attracted to islands, as a lot of us are. And the traveller hopes, let me be far from any physician, and the ports have names for the sea, the sytilis, the corroding, the sorrow, a north means to all reject and the great plains of forever where the cold fish is hunted and everywhere, the light birds flicker and flaunt, under the scolding flag the lover of islands may see at last faintly his limited hope, as he nears the glitter of glaciers, the sterile immature mountains intense in the abnormal day of this world, and a river's fan like polyp of sand. Then let the good citizen here find natural marvels. A horseshoe ravine, an issue of steam from a cleft in the rock, and rocks and waterfalls brushing the rocks, and among the rocks, birds. And the student of prose and conduct, places to visit. The site of a church where a bishop was put in a bag, the bath of a great historian, the fort where an outlaw dreaded the dark. Remember the doomed man thrown by his horse and crying, Beautiful is the hillside, I will not go. The old woman confessing, He that I loved the best, to him I was worst. For Europe is absent. This is an island and therefore a refuge where the fast affections of its dead may be bought by those whose dreams accuse them of being spitefully alive and the pale from too much passion of kissing feel pure in its deserts. Can they? For the world is, and the present, and the lie. The narrow bridge over the torrent and the small farm under the crag are the natural setting for the jealousies of a province, and the weak vow of fidelity is formed by the cairn and within the indigenous figure on horseback on the bridle path down by the lake The blood moves also by crooked and furtive inches. Asks all our questions. Where's the homage? When shall justice be done? Oh, who is against me? Why am I always alone? No, our time has no favourite suburb. No local features of those of the young for whom all wish to care. The promise is only a promise the fabulous country impartially far. Tears fall in all the rivers. Again the driver pulls on his gloves and in a blinding snowstorm starts upon his deadly journey. And again the writer runs howling to his art.
0: Letters from Iceland might be best viewed as an attempt to mock the whole genre of travel books. At least one writer seems to have been so thoroughly confused by the book that he assumed that a chapter on a ridiculous event in Icelandic history must have been made up by the authors. But it is actually mostly true and will be the subject of a future episode. A part of his time in Iceland, Odin was travelling alone except for an Icelandic guide, These guides were supplied by a professor of Icelandic studies called Sigur Nortal, who, incidentally, was also a friend of author J.R.R. Tolkien. The guides were his students. One of them was a future scholar called Ólávr Brím, who wrote mostly about Norse mythology. Unfortunately, I don't think he wrote about his part of the trip. Another guide was Ragnar Jóhannesson, later a principal in a high school in Akranes. He did write down his memories of his time with Odin. The fact that Odin's guides were from the Icelandic Studies Department of the University of Iceland shows us what interested him about the country. He had been introduced to the saga's and Icelandic folk tales by his father at a young age. He even considered his surname to be of Norse origins, analogous to the Icelandic name Ædun, and seems to have been amused that one Icelandic settler was called Ædun Skoktl, especially since the epithet Skoktl might refer to a part of a horse's anatomy, specifically a male horse. Auden was also simply interested in the people of Iceland and mostly about the common people who lived outside of the towns. But in the 1930s, there were other people who were interested in Iceland. The German Nazi party looked to Iceland. The reason was twofold. The Icelandic sagas in Eddas were considered Germanic heritage and... They considered the Icelandic people a pure ideal of the Aryan race, an idea which unfortunately did not die along with Hitler. In fact, Auden met a number of Germans traveling in Iceland, many who were Nazis on a sort of racist pilgrimage. One encounter is noteworthy. It took place at Hólar, the site of a cathedral deemed... As ugly as most Protestant places of worship by Odin. Hólar is in the northwest of Iceland, in Skáðfjörðr. If you picture Iceland as a sheep, then you can visualize it so that it is just left of the middle of the sheep's back. As a side note, Magnes claims that Iceland looks more like a duck than a sheep which is something I can't really get behind. When Auden's stay at Holar was almost over, he was informed that a group of travellers, which included one Herbert Göring, cousin of Hermann Göring, the supreme commander of the German Luftwaffe. Herbert was a high-ranking Nazi himself. Arden became very angry when he heard the news and wanted to leave Hohlar, before Herbert showed up. But he was stuck there, and at breakfast the morning after the group showed up, Auden and Herbert were seated together and managed a perfectly civil conversation. The guide, Daraknar was evidently happy that the meeting went well, since he says that the day before Auden had used unrepeatable words to describe Herbert. But... Auden and Aragnar did leave as soon as they were able. They hitched the ride on a milk truck as they had done on the way there. Auden had been a bit annoyed on the way there because the truck had to stop every five minutes to drop off empty milk canisters. The return trip was even worse since that time round they had to pick up full canisters and the driver also used the opportunity to chat to the people from the farms. Auden was miserable, having run out of cigarettes. The 42 kilometers journey took about four hours. While writing about the encounter with Herbert, he wrote about the strange feelings that many fans of Iceland have felt when encountering people whose love of Iceland is tinted by a racial ideology. He concluded, The Nazis have a theory that Iceland is the cradle of Germanic culture. Well, if they want a community like that of the sagas, they are welcome to it. I love the sagas, but what a rotten society they describe. A society with only gangster virtues. Auden loved Iceland, the sagas, and the etic poetry. He even took in a translation of the poem Hávamál, though his contributions were likely limited to rendering the words in English rather than translating. But he did not idealize the society itself. The gangster metaphor is apt, since many of the heroes of the Icelandic sagas are, in fact, anti-heroes, thugs and killers. Liking the sagas is a lot like liking the Godfather, or the Sopranos. The characters and stories draw us in, but people who really want to be like these anti-heroes are not people you would like to have breakfast with. But don't get me wrong, I don't think the Nazis were really inspired by the sagas. I think they simply wanted a Germanic equivalent to the Greek and Roman myths. They wanted to prove that Germanic culture was as good, or better, than other cultures. So, since then there has been a taint on this part of Icelandic heritage. That makes Odin, a rapid anti-fascist who loved the sagas, a valuable antidote. At the end of the milk truck ride was a town called Södarkråkur, and that is a strange name. A literal translation is Sheep River Bend" or Sheep River Hook. It is situated where thou Sheep River, bends. Arden was not impressed by the town and said it might have been built by Seventh-day Adventists who expected to go to heaven in a few months. So why bother anyway? I should note that even though Auden had these memorable sledgehammer judgments about both Hólar and Krokur, he also said that the northwest was the most beautiful part of Iceland, but I do disagree with him there. I think the northeast is head and shoulder above the other parts, even though it forms the back end of the sheep. From Söderkrokur, Odin and Ragnar went to Akureyri, where the guide had gone to school, and got a warm welcome. They did run into trouble because the hotels were full, so a friend of Ragnar's invited them to stay in an empty house belonging to his brother. Odin felt like an intruder in the house, but was glad to have accommodation. When Odin wrote about Akureyri, he said it was a... Much nicer town than Reykjavik. Unfortunately, there's a fish factory to the north, and today the wind is blowing from the north. That really did bring me back to Akureyri. When I was growing up there, the stink from the fish factory was a regular part of life. Oftentimes people would correct you if you called it a stink. They said it was penikalicht. The smell of money. The euphemism is widely known in Iceland, but luckily standards have been improved, and it is rarely a problem nowadays. Auden used many forms of travel on his trip, but most of the time he traveled by bus. When they visited the interior, they went on horseback. Though they do call them ponies, which I feel is a bit of a slight against these animals, though they might not be as large as the breeds favoured in other parts of the world. One of the subjects that comes up again and again in the book is food. Auden was mostly unimpressed by Icelandic cuisine. Soups seem to have been particularly unappetizing to him. In the chapter written in the character of a young woman, Auden and Meknes complain of sweet soups and said that Icelanders, as a special treat, put brilliantine in their soup or else flavor it perniciously with almond. The only thing to do with these soups is to drown them in stewed rhubarb, which they tend to give you at the same time. I asked my friend Nanna Röckvallta-Dóttir, who is an authority on Icelandic food, about this, and she said that it might refer to lemon and almond extract, which were often used to flavor soups. In the same chapter, they write that Mary Antoinette's economic suggestion, if they have no bread, give them cake would be a perfectly sound one in Iceland, for Icelanders are the world's greatest cake eaters. In many other farms, they eat them at every meal, starting with breakfast. Nana also helped me figure out what kind of cakes the travelers might have been offered. She says it might have been brownies, waffles, cinnamon buns, and the Icelandic specialty, klenr. The one cake that seems to have hit the spot for Auden are the Icelandic pancakes, which he describes as delicious. Today, Icelanders are trying to make skir, a fashionable yogurt replacement. Auden encountered skir and described it as a cross between a Devonshire cream and cream cheese, which is eaten with sugar and cream. It is very filling, but most people like it very much. He then added, It is not advisable, however, to take coffee and skier together just before riding, as it gives you diarrhea. His guide noted that it was not Auden that ran into trouble after mixing skier and coffee, but rather Ragnar himself. The guide's reaction was such that Auden became quite alarmed which explained why he felt compelled to include this warning to future tourists. I don't drink coffee myself, so I have never experienced this. My sister, who was trained by our grandmother from an early age to drink coffee, doesn't know of such an effect, but she also noted that she felt that skier and coffee don't really go together, so she hasn't really tried it. I decided not to ask her to conduct a scientific experiment in that area. Other people chimed in and confirmed that though this effect was not universal, it was still known. I even got a story about an older woman who seemed to use coffee and skyr in lieu of other more common laxatives. I don't really understand how Odin meant to eat skyr since he claimed to have drunk around 1,500 cups of coffee during the three months he spent here. His guide that this does not seem like an overstatement, since the poet's diet seemed to include mostly coffee and cigarettes. In the chapter where the two poets are substituted by young women, there is also another unhappy incident involving coffee. In the book, it is said that they made coffee from sulfurated drinking water, which seems like a bad idea. Auden's over-reliance on coffee is explained by the fact that Iceland had little else to drink except milk and water. There was precious little alcohol to be found, which he attributed to the fact that prohibition had just been lifted the year before. He says that illicit brandy can sometimes be got, and is sometimes insistently offered by friendly farmers, but it is deadly. Odin was also less than happy with the meat he was served with. Meat is practically confined to mutton in various forms, The Danes have influenced Icelandic cooking, and to no advantage. Meat is liable to be served up in gluttonous and half-cold lumps, covered with tasteless gravy. At the poorer farms you will only get hunky-cut, i.e. smoked mutton. This is comparatively harmless when cold— "'as it only tastes like soot. "'But it would take a very hungry man indeed to eat it hot. "'I don't remember eating hot hoggy "'It does seem wrong. "'Oden doesn't mention if it was served with white sauce, "'which is the only way I eat it. "'I do like that he tries to shift a part of the blame on the Danes. That is something we Icelanders tend to do as often as we can. He takes another swipe at the Danes while writing about vegetables, which were, apart from potatoes, conspicuous by their absence. Later, however, there are radishes, turnips, carrots, and lettuce in sweet milk. Newest potatoes begin to appear about the end of August. Boiled potatoes are eaten with melted butter, but beware of the browned potatoes, as they are coated in sugar. Another Danish barbarism. The brown potatoes are still something we serve at Yuletide and other grand occasions. Arden seems to have been happiest when he was served with salmon, preferably grilled on his travels, though he seems less enthusiastic about other types of fish, including hardfiskur. Dried fish is a staple food in Iceland. This should be shredded with the fingers and eaten with butter. It varies in toughness. The tougher kind tastes like toenails, and the softer kind like the skin of the soles of one's feet. Excuse me. When in Iceland, you should really try the dried fish, though it has increased in price to such a degree that it's not eaten as much as before. It is good to eat it with butter, but I tend to eat it plain. Another fish made an impression on him. Haukatl, which is half-dry, half-rotten shark. This is white inside with a prickly horn rind outside, as tough as an old boot. Owing to the smell of it, it has to be eaten out of doors. It is shaved off with a knife and eaten with brandy. It tastes more like boot polish than anything else I can think of. Eating shark is still quite a popular thing to inflict on tourists, and I sometimes joke that it is only given to tourists. That is an overstatement, but I have never eaten shark myself. I have decided that if my senses, not just my nose, but my eyes, are telling me not to go near something, then it is absurd to eat it. My masculinity is not fragile enough to force myself to try it. At the same occasion he also tried another traditional Icelandic dish. Whale pickled in sour milk. And concluded that shark and whale were eccentric but not absolutely inedible. Even though some Icelanders might still want to hunt whales... I don't hear many people clamor for the return of this type of dish, which is called erenki. Auden also writes of his encounter with whaling, or at least its aftermath. I wish I could describe things well, for a whale is the most beautiful animal I have ever seen. It combines the fascination of something alive, enormous and gentle, with the functional beauties of modern machinery. A 70-ton one was lying on the slipway, like a large and very dignified duchess, being got ready for the ball by beetles. To see it torn to pieces with steam winches and cranes is enough to make one a vegetarian for life. Icelanders didn't appreciate letters, or maybe it was just people from Reykjavik who disliked the book. It was not because of the anti-whaling sentiment, but rather that they were offended that Auden mentioned two men who were simply thought to be a bit mad as the most interesting thing about the town. The last part of the book is not a letter from Iceland, but rather to an Icelander, summing up Auden's views on the land and the people. He was keenly aware of class differences, which are often ignored by both Icelanders and their fans. I saw plenty of people whose standard of living I should not like to have to share, and a few whose wealth made them arrogant, ostentatious, and vulgar. Another thing he noticed is something that has always been a feature of Icelandic culture that since literacy was very high, there were many self-taught common people who could hold their own in an intellectual discussion. These were people who had little schooling, no money, but a thirst for knowledge. Auden said that, while in the country, I heard a kitchen maid give an excellent criticism of a medieval saga. In the towns, on the other hand particularly Reykjavik. There were obviously many people who had lost their specifically Icelandic culture and had gained no other. He was keenly aware of the changing of the times. I know that the day of a self-contained national culture is over, that Iceland is far from Europe that the first influences of Europe are always the worst ones, and that the development of a truly European culture is slow and expensive. Only four years after Arden's visit to Iceland, it was occupied, first by the British and then by the Americans, and transformed forever. But some things are still the same. While encouraging Icelanders to put on plays, he also noted that To start building an enormous state theatre, which you can't afford to finish, is starting on the wrong end. This is still a feature of Icelandic society, partly because politicians want to build something impressive that they will be remembered for, but it also denotes a lack of foresight that has too often led to economic disaster. Arden summed up his trip in a poem. A ship again, this time the Dettifus. Grierson can buy it, all the sea, I mean. All this Atlantic that we've now to cross, heading for England's pleasant pastures green. Protem, I have done the Icelandic scene. I watch the hills receding in the distance. I hear the thudding of engines, pistons. I hope I am better, wiser for the trip. I've had the benefit of northern breezes, the open road, and good companionship. I've seen some very pretty little pieces, and though the luck was almost all Magnesis, I've spent some jolly evenings playing rummy. No one can talk at bridge unless it's dummy. I've learned to ride, at least ride a pony, taking a lot of healthy exercise, on barren mountains and in valleys stony. I've tasted a hot spring, a taste was wise, and foods a man remembered till he dies. All things considered, I consider Iceland, apart from Reykjavik, a very nice land. That is it for today. thanks to Evan Williams, Joan Helgerson, Austin Yule, Fred Sutler, and all my other supporters. and as always, special thanks to Troy Williams, a friend of the podcast. I am Olignessti Olliathson, and this has been Stories of Iceland episode twenty two Sledgehammer Judgment from an English poet. <laughs>